0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Kion, there's a problem with the newsroom printer, but I'm pretty sure I can fix it. Is there a screwdriver around here? Yeah, uh, come with me. We do not have much time. First of all, my name is not a kion wolf. It is Fraulein Auerlong Sauerbraten Gesundheit. <laughs> Fraulein Auerlong Sauerbraten Gesundheit? We do not have enough time even for you to be repeating my name. There are things you must know. I am part of a cartel, the inky-dinky-glitchy toner knights of the empty paper tray. The inky-dinky-glitchy-toner Toner Nights of the Empty Paper Tray? We also do not have time for you to be repeating the secret name of my cartel. The inky-dinky-glitchy Toner Nights of the Empty Paper Tray have but one purpose, and that is to make sure that printers announce that they don't work long before the end of their natural lifespan so that people will buy more printers which will also stop working, causing people to buy more printers which... I must stop myself. There is no time for me to illustrate the vastness of this conspiracy. What does this have to do with me? I have reason to believe that your life is in danger because you tried to fix the printer. When you leave this building today, a man will approach you holding an umbrella, which is meant to shoot a dart containing deadly poison into your buttock. That's terrible. Fortunately, neither the umbrella nor the poison really work anymore. Our cartel has been buying things from other cartels that make things that don't last. I told them, get the extended warranty, but does anybody listen? Now we have 215 leftover umbrella poisoner things that don't do Squaddenheim. Why are you telling me this? Can't you see? I love you. Not as Kayon Wolf, but as the part of me that's truly fraulein hourlong Sauerbraten gesundheit Then we should be together. No, because love is like everything else. It wears out. But we'll always have the Lexmark X63 all-in-one printer scanner fax copier. Perhaps you can... Fax me some (laughs) time. I joke. Fax is for losers. Listen to this show about planned obsolescence. And now he has a mattress made out of floppy disks. Colin McEnroe.
2: It's true. So many of the things in my life are obsolete. And soon I will be one of them. Actually, that's one of the... Uh, kind of undercurrents, one of the subtexts in, in today's show. And it's in, in very much reflected in one of the books that's represented on today's show. We're doing a show about the concept of obsolescence. Uh, and our guests include uh, Sarah Wasserman, a professor of English uh, at the uh, University of Delaware, whose research focuses on material culture studies. She's the co-editor of Cultures of Obsolescence, History and Materiality in the Digital Age. That's, by the way, the book where Uh, There's some exploration of the fact that, you know, maybe humans are are one of the things becoming obsolete. Um, There's even an evocation, well, well, actually an evocation of Blade Runner. I mean, think about it, Blade Runner, the replicants in Blade Runner, they're a perfect example of planned obsolescence, right? At a certain point, even though they seem to be, youthful and high-functioning, they just stop working uh, and they die. So anyway, uh, so that, that might be the human condition also for us. Uh, we'll also be talking to Anna Grossman. She's a New York based freelance writer and she's the author of Obsolete, an encyclopedia of one's common things passing us by. She also has a Tumblr that keeps track of those kinds of things as well. Uh, also uh, with us and to sort of kick things off is Giles Slade, a Canadian writer and social critic. He's the author of Made to Break, Technology and Obsolescence Lessons in America. So as we go along here, we're going to talk about a lot of the implications of obsolescence, and including, well, we will come to this, but for Giles, one of the most important implications of it is that things that don't really need to be replaced are constantly being replaced, which means that our landfills are filling up and overseas landfills are filling up with hard-to-process materials, and that's sort of the not-particularly-funny and pretty-toxic consequence of this whole mentality. But we need to explore what the mentality is first and how we got there. So, uh, Giles Slate, I am going to have you uh, kick things off here. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. And um, let's begin with, an, I think an example is good. So, um, and, and maybe the best example is one of the first examples, which is the light bulb. The light bulb is a, a pretty good case history of an industry deciding to impose an artificial limit on how long something would work, right? I mean, uh, so tell us the light bulb story.
3: Well, uh, disposability, I guess, was uh, was invented uh, about 50, 60 years before the light bulb, and um, uh, but when uh, we hit the depression, people stopped buying things. So um, someone got the bright idea of shortening the lifespans of products in order to uh, promote. Their um, um, uh, I guess popularity in, in the marketplace and, and um, the first record that we have of any planned obsolescence is at General Electric, uh, where the research department uh, discovered they could make a brighter light bulb and they could also make it uh, shorter lived so it was like you were giving them an advantage at the same time you were, you were taking the lifespan away
2: um, and it, this seemed to be done kind of without apology, right I mean it, you look at the the stuff from that time there's kind of no real sense that anything sinister is going on.
3: Yeah, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, sort of positive talk about it, uh, about how we're uh, stimulating the economy by doing this. And and there were even suggestions that we should make this uh, a hard and fast rule. So we obsolete everything every two, three, four, five years, and then uh, reintroduce new products.
2: And, and part of the argument was, well, Sarah Wasserman, let me add you to the conversation. Um, it seemed as though part of the original argument was that uh, particularly in a depression economy or an economy trying to work its way out of a depression, you kind of needed this. You you couldn't just have things that lasted as long as they lasted. Uh, You had to create an economy in which people periodically were driven for artificial reasons to buy another one of something, right? I mean, there was sort of a feeling it was almost sort of a, a patriotic idea.
0: Um, thanks for having me. First of all, and, yeah, in 1932, um, Bernard London actually releases this pamphlet called "Ending the Depression Through Planned Obsolescence," which, um, in which he advocates the government actually assigning expiration dates to all commodities, that this would stimulate the economy and take America out of the depression. And so, it, it was certainly a kind of seen as a national obligation and a national good by by certain people.
2: And so, um, and so, Giles. I mean, the easiest way to rule people is to get people to buy into the way that you're ruling them. And it seems as though the American consumer was pretty persuadable about this. Whether we're talking about light bulbs or you spend some time looking at uh, the way cars. Were, were marketed. I mean, the, just the phrase. I think it's an Elvis Costello album. This year's model uh, is the implication is you should learn to want something that you don't necessarily need. At least not need as a function of the last thing you had that was like it doesn't work anymore.
3: Yeah, and uh, in uh, advertising magazines or advertising uh, magazines that taught advertisers how to write advertising copy, they'd show you how to sort of guilt trip people into um, into buying the new thing and letting go of the old thing sort of uh, shaming them into, um, you know, uh, possessing something that was brand new.
2: Uh, by the way, as we go along here, we will use um, the so far not obsolete uh, Twitter uh, in order to communicate. You can uh, tweet at us at WNPR, Colin. And so, Sarah Wasserman, one of the things that your work, I think, tries to explore is how, how the, what, where's the bleed from... That sort of basic growth economy capitalist concept, you know, that we basically we need we need a whole universe of material things that are are, are made unnecessary before their time. Um, you know, what does that do to our our psychology, our our thinking about ourselves, and, and our thinking about our lives? And I, I know that's a gigantically broad question, but uh, do you have a, a narrow answer to
0: it? Oh. It is a gigantic question, and, and maybe just one way to begin to answer it is to sort of uh, think about what Giles was saying at the end of his comment—that um, that we are taught this desire. It's not organic. We're taught this desire to own something, you know, a little newer, a little better, a little sooner than is necessary, and so. Um, you know, we're always updating our software and upgrading our products, and that this becomes really, or has become, um, really a deep and fundamental part of many people's psychology, especially in, in what we call the Western world. And I think that that um, does bleed and influence more than just our, our purchasing, our consumer practices. And we can talk about what those ways might be. I'm glad to do that.
2: All right. Well, we'll do that as we go along, uh, um, and. Um but before we do that Giles I'm also cuz maybe we should talk a little bit about the way things were looked at prior to the institution of uh the d- disposable ethic the notion of o- obsolescence I mean what was the life cycle of a product that was say designed and sold in 1875 and was there a different set of expectations for it
3: well a non-disposable product had a very different set of expectations you'd uh I guess first of all hold on to it much longer and it would change uses you uh, as as it uh, went through time so you'd uh, break up a um i don't know um a cabinet and use it for shelves or you'd break up a uh, uh, a a garment and turn it into scarves or into quilts that kind of thing it it was more a sort of stewardship of objects where the the material itself had a long to- had a long life in your possession and in the possession of other people and we didn't toss things, you know, we didn't put them into the uh, the landfill.
2: Um, actually, we're going to, uh, one of the people who kind of, I think kind of recognized the psychology of this and what it does, the kind of erosion that takes place uh, in in the mind of a person, the soul of a person maybe, was Arthur Miller. Uh, so uh, I'm going to let Sarah react to this little clip from uh, Death of a Salesman where the Lomans are, are talking about their own financial situation, particularly vis-a-vis the things they own.
1: And you had that motor job on the car. And there's one more payment on the refrigerator.
3: One more payment? But the belt just broke again.
1: I know, dear, but it's old.
3: Once in my life, I'd like to own something outright before it's broken. I'm always in a race with the junkyard. Just finished paying for the car, and it's on its last legs. The refrigerator consumes belts like a crazy maniac. They time those things. They time them. So when you finally paid for them, they're used up.
2: So uh, Sarah Wasserman, there's Willy Loman basically putting words to it. He says they time those things so that just when you pay for them, they're used up. And and I'm sure that Arthur Miller means us to see not only the trap in which Willy Loman and his wife feel that they're caught in, but that it's also in some way about him. Right. That as soon as soon as he's ripe, he's over.
0: He's he's working so hard for this projected life in the future that by the time they can even get close to that, he himself is, in a sense, obsolete, used up, as you're saying. And I think that the play, although it, it seems to highlight something that might be itself a little bit outdated, you know, um, paying for certain appliances in this particular way, it's still very much true that, you know, as soon as we're done sort of paying off the credit card debt for our latest laptop, it's obsolete as well. So Miller's really getting at something um, that was ramping up in the 20th century, but, but we can say is even more ramped up today. That's still familiar and still very powerful for us today.
2: All right. Uh, by the way, if you want to call in, actually, it would be better if you tweeted at us at WNPR just because our phone lines are a little busy at the moment. Uh, and it would be interesting to know uh, of things that things that you've noticed, things that you remember going obsolete in, in your lifetime. And I should say that one of the people who makes it her business to chronicle those things, uh, Anna Grossman, uh, is a New York freelance writer, the author of Obsolete, an encyclopedia of once common things passing us by. Um, Anna Grossman, first of all, tell me, uh, tell us how you became interested. In this question, why why would a person want to uh, make note of all the things that become obsolete?
4: Hi. Um, well, I think I started to notice that you know, as, as someone in her in her mid thirties, that I I was part of a sort of sandwich generation, um, young enough to uh, appreciate what it's like to live in a all digital all the time world, um, but old enough also to remember handing in papers that I wrote on typewriters and. Having relationships with people before there were cell phones, and um, it made me think about how uh, we're a generation that's nostalgic for things that really uh, were around rather recently. And I think it's I think it's aged us. I also think it's you know it's a, it's a little bit exhausting getting used to new products one after the other. It's like every time. You get a new cell phone. I always think of it as sort of like moving to a new neighborhood, where you need to figure out, you know, where you're going to get your coffee and where you're going <laughs> to do your laundry. Right? We're always making these little adjustments to adjust to the the new thing. Um, we take for granted that we're constantly doing that, but um, I think it does take a toll. That I, I wonder if if uh, previous generations. Um, experienced that kind of exhaustion in the same way
2: well, you know I, I think that might, will be interesting to explore with our other guests, but Anna it seems to me that your your generation is maybe just the spotlights on you more, and we have other more ways to document what your generation is doing, but it seems to me that your generation is caught in this really knows, noticeable loop of nostalgia. Not everybody, of course, but, I mean, you can't even watch a commercial anymore without seeing hipsters parod- parodied. And the way they're, hip- they're parodied is, that you know, they wear fedoras and they ride unicycles and they like vintage typewriters and fixed-gear bikes and, you know, they, they make artisanal pickles and old-fashioned pickle barrels. And, I mean, I mean, this entire movement, which obviously is by no means 100% of a generation, but still a very noticeable movement, is is about i think the kind of nostalgia you're talking about it was it's almost about what did we lose before we even knew it existed
4: yeah i what really interests me is sort of the the collateral damage you know when every time we move on to the newer the better the smaller the faster thing Certainly there, there are, are new habits, some of which definitely make our lives easier. You know, I, I think most people could find some good things to say about having a smartphone, right? <laughs> There's a lot of advantages. Um, and I can't necessarily say, I, you know, I miss uh, sitting over a fax machine. Um, but... What about all the other things that, that maybe were enjoyable? You know, I when I was a teenager, I, I wrote postcards like it was my job. I was really, it was, it was like my medium. I loved it. I loved picking out which card went with, you know was sent to each person, and I loved like, you know, writing things, and it had to be in a fixed amount of space. Um, I stopped doing that. I mean I of course, I could still write postcards I, That's possible, but at this point, if I were to do it, it would like mark me as some you know real crazy quirky hipster girl um, rather than just something that you know is done because because I enjoy it and also I've sort of like lost the the reason to do it. so I, I'm often thinking about that sort of thing, also how our relationships have have lost color I, to some extent, I think because of some of the new technology you know, when, when you send an email to someone, it, it looks like every other email that you send to other people when you send a text message, you know, rather than, you know, on a phone where you are have someone's voice, which is different than other people's voices, or a letter where you've chosen what kind of paper you're going to write on or what kind of pen you're using, and all, all those kinds of uh, little bits of life that, that communicate information and feeling that, that we're losing in favor of, of the speed and the ease of this, that the new technology gives us.
2: Although Giles Slade, this is by no means a new phenomenon, and she talks about paper and pen. But we know that one of the, I mean, the the, the pen itself has been through this incredible uh, evolution. So that a hundred years ago, a pen really was a fairly permanent thing. You continually filled it more with ink. Um, uh, you didn't expect to get a new one every six months or a year. And certainly, the notion of a disposable pen, uh, uh, the the you know that you would be able to walk into a drugstore and buy a big bag of sixty-five ballpoint. Pens none of which you were expected to form any attachment to whatsoever, would have been a pretty odd thing for Ralph Waldo Emerson or Edith Wharton, uh, or I can even go a little bit further in time than that, to wrap their minds around, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, not only that, but the idea that you would then take the pen that you're finished with and throw it away or just leave it somewhere so that it would then be thrown away. I mean, that, that's uh, just irresponsible and alien to that kind of um, uh, mindset.
2: And Sarah Wasserman, I'm also wondering, you know, whether or not, and this, I don't, this isn't a question that, that you automatically have to have the answer to, but as I listen to Anna, I'm also thinking, well, I mean, in, in the course of my lifetime, really, most countercultural movements seemed to contain some rejection of obsolescence of throwaway culture of impermanence so that, you know, along with hippie culture in the late 1960s, there was this sort of back to the land movement. Right. There was this notion that you were going to reject materialism. Um, And I'm not sure how successful that was. I mean, this feels a little bit more like a phase, but it was it's always there in a countercultural movement.
0: I'm not sure that's entirely true. I mean, I I think you're pointing to some compelling examples, but I would ask, you know, there are certainly other movements that look, try and look ahead and try and always embrace the now and the future. So whether that's futurism and art or even things you might think about more like electronic music, which says we're all about the now, we're all about the present, we are radical precisely because we reject what's come before. Um, And so we see what's good about obsolescence. We see that, you know, a smartphone that we carry around, to to use Anna's example, it's 16 gigabytes of memory, actually holds as much data as 4 million sheets of paper that would stack 45 meters high. So there are always, you know, pros and cons and people that are saying, embrace the new. It's not only about our debt and our disposability, but about the new capacities that that we gain as a result of this, this Change
2: right, so there's always this uh, tug of war going on about yeah. new, new capacities and economies that go along with them versus whatever's valuable valuable about their analog predecessor. I mean one thing that I'm thinking of right now since you mentioned electronic uh, music is you know increasingly the question about whether a Broadway show or any kind of musical theater that you see anywhere needs to have a pit band a pit orchestra, so many of those sounds can be uh they, they can be rendered, but in a colder, more digital way by electronic music or pre-recorded music. I mean, there are all kinds of other options that save insane amounts of money and deprive musicians of their livelihood. And so, I mean, some of the kind of transhuman anxieties that, that are there in your book are, are present in any conversation like this one, right?
0: and I think that as much as we we have, you know, I personally also feel that pressure to keep up, to buy the next and the newest thing. There's also the truth that it's not that these beloved objects for which we feel nostalgic just disappear. So it's not just, you know, the vinyl boom or um, slow food and the rebirth of those things. It's also we're on the radio now, and despite the fact that Buggles said video killed the radio star, here we are, and, you know, people are tuning in. And so... Obsolescence is never an all-or-nothing game. I think that's part of what makes it so compelling.
2: Well, although uh, Giles Slade, one of the things that you point out in your book is, I mean, exactly what Sarah just said. But that that conversation started much earlier. That Sarnoff uh, thought that television was going to end radio, right?
3: Yeah, he was planning on it ending radio, but it, it doesn't. You're right; it doesn't happen like that. The uh, radio sort of spins off into its own share of the market but um you know there's a there's a popular movement in Europe uh against planned obsolescence and they're actually passing laws these days uh to um uh, limit the life or to extend the lifespans of products so i think it's it's coming back and and it's becoming a much more popular topic and i think people are identifying um an anti-obsolescent kind of sentiment with uh, with true value and um uh, uh Europe i guess Planned the first um, electronic waste laws, uh, the IEEE laws, before they came to America. So I think uh, these uh, planned obsolescent laws will will come soon. We'll will import them, and uh, and and the hipster movement is uh, you know a movement towards uh, durability and, and true value, and 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 so um, perhaps we're moving in that direction.
2: Although Anna Grossman, uh, I mean, I think it is in fact at least it, it's a movie that a movement movement that exalts durability and permanence, but it's also in some ways, just purely nostalgic. I think one of the things that you featured on your Tumblr recently was uh, one of those filters or attachments that allows you to recreate the style of a Polaroid. Now, the, uh, a Polaroid picture, um, it, it doesn't need to exist anymore because, in fact, the notion of having a picture instantly available uh. <laughs> is, is very passe. But there's, some, there's something else that we want, right?
4: I think there is a beauty to a certain tangibility that we're starting to lose, whether it's um, the notes that you're writing on a mixtape that you give someone or, or a Polaroid that you can hold and put on the refrigerator for sure. But I think it's interesting that we're, we're talking about a lot of things that have become obsolete in the last decade, two decades, three decades maybe, where really just the notion of having a photo that you can see right away is still a pretty new idea, you know. I think anyone who's alive right now has experienced more change in their lives than anyone, you know, any of their ancestors ever. You know, there were many, many generations where your life was probably pretty similar to your parents' life, which was probably similar to their parents' life, as far as what kind of technology we're going to use. Um, whereas, you know, in the last 100, 200 years, I mean, we're, we're talking about going from, uh, you know, bicycles, which were, you know, still relatively new 100, 150 years ago, to, um, you know, smart cars today, right? You know, uh, we're, we're looking at going from uh, there there used to be oil shops uh, all over which became obsolete um, because we got electricity um, I think that we we take for granted that change is, is a huge huge part of um, what the 20th and 21st century has, has been about and we're learning how to how to deal with it um, because I'm not sure there's much precedent um, as far as uh, dealing with such a such a PD rate
2: of change. Right, there's got to be an oil shop in Bushwick by now. But anyway, we'll take a little break. We'll come back more uh, with more of this. If you can think of your own experience of obsolescence, especially planned obsolescence, do tweet us at wnbr. Comes to mind when you hear the word obsolete: rotary telephones, answering machines, roll-down windows. What does nobody use anymore?
3: Horses to get in places like horses. Like yeah, with those that's a good one. Couch. The horse and carriage.
4: Yeah. VHS tapes, cassette players, all that stuff. You know, with VHS, sometimes a lot of people have home movies on VHS. So I think there's a little purpose for everything.
0: Can you think of any traditions or practices which are obsolete? I think the family dinner. The kind of traditional American, like, Norman Rockwell painting has kind of become an obsolete tradition.
3: Uh, I don't know. Chivalry. <laughs> yeah.
4: Is
1: he not chivalrous anymore? I'm a, I'm a very chivalrous Never. person.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Agree.
3: Yeah, I kind of agree with, like, relationship-wise, like, kind of opening the door, small things like that. I really don't see that happening anymore.
0: Does he open the doors for you? Sometimes. Sometimes. I forget, sometimes.
1: <laughs>
2: So, uh, first of all, we're talking about obsolescence today. Uh, That was uh, Vox uh, Sound Gathered from the Streets by Josh Nilea, who's the producer of this show today, too. With us, Giles Slade. His book is Made to Break, Technology and Obsolescence in America. Sarah Wasserman is the co-editor of Cultures of Obsolescence, History, Materiality in the Digital Age. Anna Grossman uh, is the author of Obsolete, an Encyclopedia of Once Common Things Passing Us By. So uh, I want to talk about uh, perceived obsolescence and sort of the the whole notion of, as we said earlier, getting people to basically volunteer to live in this culture. Um, So... Uh, Sarah, I'm going to uh, start with you since you're the English professor here. One of the things that I've noticed is that loaded into um, a lot of our language is this sense of volunteering for uh, obsolescence. For example, um, uh, from time to time I will be told by somebody younger around me that I'm entitled to a new cell phone, which is to say that I've held on to my old smartphone long enough so that under the contract that I'm particip- participating in, I'll get either free or vastly discounted or something like that, uh, a new cell phone, a new smartphone, except that the word entitled uh, it, it, you know, is often, or some version of that is layered in there as, as if to suggest that I'm participating in some system of merit
0: It sounds like you have nice people talking to you, and they're saying you're entitled to the new cell phone instead of saying you're shameful for holding on to your your old one. Uh, So I'd begin by saying you have kind company, um, because we often also associate the hanging on to the old car or the unfashionable clothing or the old cell phone as being a kind of shameful thing. And I think this does in part start with that earlier history we talked about a little bit, where... um, in the mid-19th century, there was still very much a mix of, you know, kind of throwaway ethic beginning to emerge, but people also reusing. And that reusing, in fact, slowly came to be a marker of, um, you know, poverty would be too strong, but that the ability to buy new things is, of course, bound up with status and an appearance of wealth. Um, And so that it's as much as we're, we're volunteering for this, as you're saying, it also becomes a form of social pressure, right, to keep up, to keep up with everyone.
2: Yeah, Giles Slade, I was going to ask about that. How, like how, how old is the, is the notion of perceived obsolescence, the obsolescence where they don't even, even necessarily have to physically build it in to the object, although they can, uh, but instead they'll just psychologically get people to say, oh, I really can't use this anymore.
3: Well, it starts with technological obsolescence. You know, things uh, um, uh, advances in science sort of progress and obsolete things out. But uh, psychological obsolescence is is really created by advertising, and that comes before plant obsolescence. And uh, there was this magazine back in uh, I guess the teens and twenties, Printer's Zinc, that told you how to do this, how to uh, how to shame your customers into buying something new
2: um and and so i mean uh, how how do you how do you do that? How do you shame your customers? I mean, is it sort of as Sarah suggested that somehow or other it's um, a, a token of success that you can buy something new all the time and a token of failure or implicitly poverty uh, if you're constantly washing things so you can use them again or yeah or, yeah.
3: or you're old fashioned and tight fisted and uh, and you know you you won't uh, spend money on a, a luxury that's really become a necessity. Um, and, and Sarah, it does seem
2: as though language started to be loaded, has started to be loaded up. In other words, every time there's a new technology revolution, there's a bunch of language that goes with it um, so that, uh, you know, the, the way that we communicate, uh, the way that we describe the way that we communicate or anything that we use has technological terms that, that are specific to a technological phase, Right.
0: I mean, this is the kind of question I love, of course, as an English professor, and I'll try and be brief, but it actually, the word obsolescence comes into being, um, or it appears first uh, in the context of language. So Edward Spencer says that outdated words, obsolescent words, actually bring grace to a poem, so that obsolescent in its origins isn't so um, negative. And, you know, there are rules, laws in linguistics that tell us, well, when a new form enters a language, it doesn't just... Completely erase the old form. The old form stays and takes on a secondary function, um, and I think that that's very much like obsolescence. That these old objects stick around and take on a more specialized role, and you know, there's this newfangled object and and the language to correspond with it, and so you have to keep up not just with the objects but with the the language that goes along with them.
2: And so, Anna. You know, for uh, your generation, not to make you a spokesperson or, uh, you know, irreparably lodged in one particular generational span, but, I mean, that whole notion— that, the cell phone I'm holding in my hand right now, even though it, can, though it can do marvelous things. As you said, most of these technologies were marvelous. Before we came on the air, Before in, in sort of a little piece that aired before the news, I was talking about fax machines, which are considered unbelievably retro and stupid and slow and useless, and anybody who clings to them is, is shamed in various ways or made fun of or made to feel old. On the other hand, I'm old enough to remember when fax machines were a miracle. The notion that you could put something on a piece of paper Put the piece of paper into a machine and have essentially the same thing come out in Switzerlanders. That was incredible. Nobody could believe it.
4: it. Completely incredible. Completely incredible. My my uh, my. Dad is a political cartoonist, and when the fax machine came along, it really revolutionized his work because suddenly he could, you know, think of a cartoon and, and fax it to an editor and say, hey, what do you think of this? And it was timely and it was fast. He so didn't have to call a messenger or describe it over the phone. I mean, yeah, the fax was a marvel. And sometimes I think, you know, how how spoiled we are that 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 kind of thing now seems – it seems silly and 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 we make fun of it. But I wanted to go back to you know the the language of it i I love trying to think of words that um relate to uh technologies that have become obsolete, but that still have uh, stuck around. I'm not sure what the word is for those kinds of words, but for example, we talk about dialing a phone, you know yeah. even little kids might talk about dialing a number i'm I'm imagining, even though they've probably never used a, a rotary dial phone. Um, or even the word hold, you know, putting someone on hold is something that's entered, entered a vocabulary that um, has origins in actually using a, a phone that you had to put on hold. Um, or, or the word hello, which certainly doesn't seem like it's going anywhere, but the word hello only came to be because we needed something to say when we answered the phone, and uh, The word hello uh, won out over ahoy. (laughs) That's right.
2: That was what uh, Alexander Graham Bell thought you should say into the phone, was ahoy. (laughs) And, of course, you may have noticed that uh, Mr. Burns on The Simpsons uh, does say ahoy when he answers the phone, Uh, and that's a little sort of nod uh, to that whole thing. Well, Josh, our producer, is also suggesting hanging up a phone. I mean, actually, you used to actually literally hang up a phone. Oh, absolutely,
4: Uh, or hang up on someone,
2: yeah. Right. So, So, yeah, so those words are still there. Although, Sarah Wasserman, I feel as though uh, you know, if we're going to talk about stigmatization and shaming, that um, that yes, it's probably in the 30s, 40s, 50s, as this new culture uh, of uh, of obsolescence and of disposability uh, was taking hold, there was um, that sort of notion that you're not participating in a boom economy, you're not wealthy, you're you know, the whole status-driven thing uh, was a way of linking these new products, these new you know not so long lasting products with success and status that to me could be just (laughs) could be my own sensitivities. But I don't think so. I think age is the new poverty in a certain way that, you know, if you're if you still have an AOL account (laughs) or you use Internet Explorer or something like that, that, you know, you'll sort of hear from the people younger around you that you have failed to keep up with the times.
0: Oh, I hope age isn't a new poverty. I would hope that in the same way that, you know, artists have always had a very good perspective on obsolescence and obsolete objects, I think, right? They are the ones that are often at the forefront of using these outdated materials and actually objects to make very powerful art. And I would hope that in some kind of funny analogy that the, the, the those of us who are blessed with age, let's say, um, are, can be seen as valuable in the same way. That in itself is an old-fashioned view. But I think that your question does point to something that, that I find fascinating, which is that our relationship to, to obsolescence does get at a lot of these very profound human concerns about aging and mortality and how, how we keep up in that sense.
2: Well, yeah, So, and one of the things that uh, I alluded to earlier that you explore in your book Is I mean, we're sort of at a moment, right? Uh, Whatever anxiety we feel about the singularity, whatever anxiety we feel about transhuman movements where machines and people will merge more and more, people will become more machine-like, machines will become more people-like, that we're really at the point where it's not insane to ask the question, at what point does a flesh and blood regularly constituted human being become obsolete? Is that part of the anxiety?
0: Oh, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You know, you mentioned Blade Runner before, which is a great reference, and you mm-hmm. see in popular culture, I think, the fascination with, with robots and with, with vampires and with all of these things that are not human um, point to the way in which we ask, are humans themselves becoming obsolete? And there's a scholar who I really like named Jeffrey Winthrop Young who talks about wetware. He says that we have hardware and software in our computers, and humans are the wetware that, that often is slowing down the machine. Um, And and so this is part of the conversation that's happening around this topic. But I do think that, or I would like to believe that our our status as wetware, we also have things like imagination and creativity that never go obsolete and that machines can't quite replicate yet.
2: So um, I think wetware might also be from the book, uh, from the story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was the basis for Blade Runner. Philip K. Dick, I mean, he saw so much of this stuff coming. It's kind of amazing. So, Giles, I I want to sort of come back to the the, the whole growth of the movement of planned obsolescence and bring up this it seems to me that there's always been kind of a counter narrative right that you should buy something that lasts a long time I mean that's not a new concept it's not an outmoded concept I mean you know my whole life I've known Volvo owners who want to tell me you know that they've got 250,000 miles I guess it's Subaru owners now, (laughs) you know want to brag about this insane amount of time that they've kept this car for Timex sold uh, um, watches keep uh, takes a licking and keeps on ticking I mean the notion of durability the notion of permanence the notion that you buy something of value and keep it a long time that's not something that we completely tossed out right
3: no but it's become a luxury item so things like rolexes and uh, and mercedes-benz things that you pay much more for uh, are the the items that now last a long time but what's really interesting is in appliances uh, you pay for luxury items like high-end sort of stainless steel appliances and they don't last as long as the mid-range ones and, and that's very perplexing to me and I, I just wanted to say as far as the language debate goes uh, there's there's uh, there's this phrase digital destruction which really privileges uh, obsolescence and and, um, and you know Steve Jobs used to say "Oh, uh, books are ripe for digital destruction publishing is ripe for digital destruction newspapers are ripe for digital destruction And and, uh, calling it digital destruction sort of um, uh, allows obsolescence to take place. And uh, there are many things, I think, that that are ripe for digital destruction, including, unfortunately, uh, universities and and, um, um, cash. Uh, ATMs, uh, a variety of things that are just go- we're going to see the back of in the next 20 years, and I think humanity, yes, is one of these things because of climate change. and And, uh, and I think we're aware in uh, many cultural productions like Game of Thrones and all these things that um, we're um, we're really on the edge of uh, complete annihilation <laughs> and, and and obsolescence. And so perhaps we uh, we will be replaced by machines.
2: Right. Winter is coming. Winter I did, is coming. Yeah, I did, uh, uh, just at the, right before we went on the air, I suddenly thought of uh, Bill Burr, the comedian, has a kind of hilarious, although dark, meditation on why he doesn't think Steve Jobs is such a great hero. And I think at the end of that tirade, uh, he says, uh, really? He says, the new phone doesn't fit the old charger? That's <laughs> your hero? Uh, so, anyway, we'll take a little break. We'll come back with more Obsolescence, assuming we're not obsolete by then, after this. Until
1: Lieutenant Worf, the food replicator stopped working again. Does anybody remember how to make food? Today's show was produced by Josh Naleya and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Dan Schultz. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and the part of Bill Curry was played by the Maytag Repairman. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton show staff dancing to their 45 collection, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. And now... Back to Colin.
2: Actually, last night uh, I was uh, visiting with some friends who I think I was pretty sure were five to seven years old, uh, younger than I was. And I was asking them if they remembered 45s. It's hard to know exactly what everybody remembered, what everybody experienced in terms of these phases of technology. So in a gross I'm going to quickly tell you a story because uh, you know, one of the references uh, in that prerecorded uh, bit there may have escaped you. So or maybe you know all about this. I don't really know. But there used to be these commercials about the Maytag repairman. And the notion was and I think Jonathan Winters might have even played the Maytag repairman for a while. But the notion was that he had he was like this this Kafkaesque or maybe Sartre-esque figure who just sat there and sat there because Maytag uh, machines were so reliable and they never broke down, nobody ever called him. So he's just sort of sitting by a phone, you know, this incredibly... Isolated, existentially tormented figure who nobody ever needed, but it seems to me one of the things that has become obsolete or nearly obsolete is the is the repairman. Um, not because Maytag washing machines are so incredibly reliable that they last forever, but because and this is in a documentary that that uh, Giles actually appears in. But uh, in, there, part of this documentary begins with I think a broken printer, and and this the documentary film crew follows a guy around from shop to shop where they look at the printer and they say. Well, really, it makes more sense just to buy a new one. Um, which, I mean, the the notion of fixing something it strikes me as something that's become obsolete.
4: Yeah, uh, you know, the, I always think about it when when I dare to get my shoes repaired. <laughs> I think you know I'm spending more on repairing the shoe than I probably spent on the shoe to begin with. Um, such as <clears throat> such as the, the way. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh the the people who have the shops that are set up to repair our phones, those are those are the the shoe repairmen of, of today. Um we, we do try and milk our phones um for some amount of time. Um but they certainly they certainly uh do break easily and it's certainly easy to decide that you're just gonna you're gonna get a new one. Um but there is a culture of upcycling. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting, and I hope that's something that becomes uh more and more prevalent, um sort of trying to figure out creative ways that whether whether it's fixing something so that it works again or giving something a new use, um, I think it's kind of it kind of becomes a a fun a fun game, if not necessarily practical
2: and And Giles, I do feel sometimes if you push back against the membrane of that, oh, it's much easier. Just to get a new one. This isn't really worth fixing. That sometimes you will find out that maybe that's the thing that they were tell they that they were told to tell you at first, but it's not necessarily true. I mean, you can get things fixed.
3: Yeah, uh, it's quite difficult. But uh, you know, this whole movement towards miniaturization, you know, increasingly thin computers, is uh, really a movement against repair because you you can't access the thing uh, to uh, to actually get in there and repair the solid state. Uh, um, uh, system that um, you know that you need to pull out and and, uh, and replace, and and I guess you know Apple uh, uh, makes it even more difficult by changing their screwdrivers so that uh, you can't find an Apple screwdriver, you know, to open the device in the first place.
2: So uh, now's the time to talk about
3: the the way in which, if in
2: fact we are facing extinction, we're participating in our own doom through the very phenomenon that we're talking about right now, Giles. A lot of your book is just about where all this stuff goes. If, in fact, you don't keep a computer more than 18 months, you don't keep a a phone more than two years, it all has to go somewhere.
3: Yeah, Nigeria, India, Bangladesh, uh, you know— Uh, we ship this toxic stuff off to the uh, developing world and uh, they break it apart or reuse it, you know, and and, um, uh, so it's capable of having a much longer life than than we uh, anticipate, but, um, but not in the face of these wonderful new products that sort of come out and replace them every 18 months.
2: And one of the things that you, you uh, talk about is that, yeah, these things are they're, – they're also not made of things that are easily gotten rid of, right? The things – not yeah. only they are, are they difficult to repair, uh, but they're difficult to dispose of. We don't have enough space in our country to dispose of them all. We've got to send them other places. Right. Uh, there's, it's starting to be the case that those other places may not accept them anymore or we might not, may not even have enough containers to ship them to other places. But on top of it all, when they are disposed of, they're really dangerous
3: yeah and uh, and there's uh, there's more to it than that you know our relationship to ob- objects sort of uh, mirrors our relationship to people, <laughs> so our relationships used to be very durable, our relationships to objects uh, used to be very durable, our relationships to objects are, are now uh, very transitory, and our relationships to people are largely transitory as well and uh, and furthermore, this is um, I feel you know this kind of rampant consumerism is a, is a distraction. Uh, from uh, what's really important in the world, what what really sort of nourishes us and feeds us, and also what threatens us, uh, you know. Uh, so we've uh, we've become hamsters in this wheel of uh, of consumption of uh, these wonderful, you know. I love my cell phone, but uh, these wonderful new products. Uh, but uh, you know, we're distracted from what's really important and uh, and can't focus on our own survival, and that that worries me.
2: So um, Sarah Wasserman, since uh, this was tweeted by another person named Sarah and it follows up on what Giles just said, uh, I'll, I'll let you speak Sarah to Sarah. So Sarah says, let's talk about how online dating has rendered long term relationships and real love obsolete. Um, you know, that may or may not be strictly true, but I mean, if in fact Giles is making the argument that um, in all of the ways that our, our material culture is disposable, uh, maybe we're starting to think of uh, our relationships and people as a little bit more disposable. I mean, if you can go on a site that's essentially a menu you know, <laughs> and order a different kind of person, uh, maybe there's an argument there.
0: I think there might be an argument there. and While I am I am completely in agreement with Giles about the relationship between obsolescence and our environment, um, I'm not so sure I think it, it's as gloom and doom as, as Sarah is, is, is saying about online dating. Um, I think that there's a lot that we, we don't quite understand and it might not be so black and white. You know, that things, everything that's durable does wear down. That's been the subject of, of many many a poem and many a love song, that these things we think will be around forever in fact aren't. And we also just... The discover that everything temporary and everything transient, in fact, leaves a trace. Um, and so while I do think that things like dating and, and online dating sites seem to be also more about upgrading and making sure that you're optimizing and maximizing, um, that there are still, just like our typewriters or our records that, that hang around um, Still, lots of lots of room and lots of space for for the durable and for the enduring qualities of things like love in our in our lives.
2: So uh, yeah, Anna Grossman. Obviously, every narrative does have a counter narrative. So. Uh, to whatever degree we are ordering from these gigantic cheesecake factory menus of people, uh, you know, uh, we still live in an age of deeply, deeply romantic "let's stay together forever" movies. Um, on the other hand, in a world that includes Tinder and things like that, I mean, do you feel as though th- that that there is some humanistic loss here um, th- of the kind that Giles was suggesting?
4: Yes, I mean, I think it would be <laughs> reductive to say something like, you know, love is obsolete. But when you think about how we how we date now, um, for instance, going through an online dating site, you could have you could meet someone, never know their last name, never know their phone number or email address. Um, you don't have a good time. Uh, it's not uncommon to just never communicate with a person again. Um, I recently went out on an online date and afterwards wrote the person an email saying, you know, it was really nice to meet you, but you know, I don't think this is going to work out. And I thought. I thought, wow, I actually didn't even have to do that. Right? <laughs> I could have just disappeared. And uh, and that's become more and more acceptable. Um, the thing that scares me most about relationships and how technology is, is um, changing our relationships is is the, the idea that kids need to learn how to have a conversation. Um, I find it very uh, troubling when I'm in a room with with you know teenagers or, or even younger kids than that, um, who uh, can't start a conversation, can't can't think of some sort of empathetic thing to say, can't um, talk, you know, for even a solid minute about what they did with their day. I mean, I think that's always something that that's challenging for children but um at a dinner table putting an ipad with a movie on it so that you know you can have an adult conversation putting that in front of your kid you know sure it's 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 tempting and 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 perhaps even useful in many situations but what is the what is the loss there you know i think there there's a um there's something to be learned in those moments of, of being bored around adults and uh, having to come up with something to say.
2: Well, in that sense, I've certainly made my son learn a lot. Uh, all right, we have to stop here. Thanks very much to Giles, uh, to Giles Slade, a Canadian writer who wrote me to Break, Technology and Obsolescence in America, Sarah Wasserman. She's the co-editor of Cultures of Obsolescence. Anna Grossman, she's the author of Obsolete, an encyclopedia of once common things passing us by. Special thanks to Josh Nilea, who conceived of this show and executed it.
1: Okay, robot Kyone Wolf, since I'm going to be obsolete one day, i got to get you trained. So repeat after me. And now. And now. No. Um, it's more like... And now you go down to the bottom of your voice. And now. Yeah, that'll do.